0: Well, thank you, brother. Greetings in Christ. It's good to be here with you this evening. Trust that the Lord will bless us. Um, While I'm greeting you, uh, I want you to do me a favor. Either take the blue Trinity hymnal that's near you and turn in the back to page 670, not hymn 670, but page 670, or if you want to on your phone, go to the website 1689confession.com because you're going to need the confession. And either one of these will be a way to help you through it. In Southern California, we've had, uh, Rich, how many conferences have we had? Um, 12, I think, 12. And uh, the first two were somewhat introductory, introductory. But then we began to work through the confession of faith year by year. and it generally speaking is my responsibility to open the conference and to give an overview of the doctrine that is in that chapter throughout the whole confession. So this is very similar to what I do each year at the Southern California Conference in November, which by the way, if you're interested, it's in November, we'd love to have you come and be with us. But that's what I'll be doing. We'll be spending time looking at the confession of faith Nope, the title's not up there. It is Law in the Second London Confession of Faith. So let's begin. Follow along with me. Now, before we speak about law in the confession, I want to talk about the gospel. Because the Second London Confession, 1689 Confession, is primarily about the gospel. Even the way we refer to it, it's a confession of faith. Now, faith has a double meaning. On the one hand, it describes to us what our faith is, the content of our faith. But on the other hand, it also reminds us of the fact that we need to believe the things that are contained in it. And the main focus of the confession of faith is to recount for us the wonders and the glories of the triune God, the creator, sustainer, and consummator of all things. Look with me, for example, at your confession, and notice the very first sentence added by the Baptists, but it was placed there for a variety of reasons, but especially to strengthen our thoughts about Scripture as we read. Notice what it says. Chapter one, paragraph one: "The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain and infallible rule of all saving faith, uh, saving knowledge, faith and obedience. Right here, the confession begins with faith. It continues in chapter 2 when it introduces us to God and of the Holy Trinity. Look at the first paragraph of chapter 2. And notice, towards the end, perhaps about 2 thirds of the way down, in speaking to us about our God, it tells us that he is most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and with all the most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the the guilty. Here we are reminded of the fact that our God is a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of long-suffering, who is abundant in goodness and truth. If you turn over with me to chapter 6, I want you to notice something. This is one of my favorite phrases in the Confession of Faith. Chapter 6, paragraph 3, is the darkest moment. This, this is the depths of the theology of the Confession. Notice what it says. They, that is, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they being the root, and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind... The guilt of the sin, their sin, the violation of the commandment not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the guilt of the sin was imputed, and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. That's us. The reason the world is as it is, and the world, the reason that we are what we are is because Adam and Eve, a historical man and woman, in a historical place, at a historical moment, disobeyed God's command. And that sin has come down to us. This is dark. Notice as it goes on. Being now conceived in sin, and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Now, if we were to unpack that, it would be a depressing Theological statement to think about. But thankfully, this paragraph doesn't end there because there's one more phrase. Notice what it says All of these dark things, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. Even there, in the midst of a description of the depth of sin, it points us to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you see the point that I'm trying to make. This confession is primarily about the gospel. If we were to proceed from chapter 7 through chapter 20, the large section of the confession of faith, it deals with the doctrine of salvation. And it does so by means of covenant theology. This is the primary focus of these chapters. It's the central theme of the confession. Chapter 7 speaks of God's covenant. Chapter 8, a wonderful statement about Christ the mediator. Chapters 10 through 13 speak about the acts that God performs in bringing us to faith. And chapters 14 through 18 speak about our responses. Now, there's much more that we might say about the confession and about its focus on the gospel. Now, you're probably wondering, why are you beginning here? What's the reason that you're beginning in this way? Well, it's because of this. This confession of faith, what I call the Second London Confession of Faith, has a great deal to say about law, so much so that we might have the perception that it's primarily about the law. See, I don't want you walking away from this lecture thinking, well, the confession of faith is just about the law. It's not, it's about the gospel and the way that the gospel relates to the law. We can say that to some degree, this confession of faith reflects the emphases of the Heidelberg Catechism guilt, grace, and gratitude. Remember that easy outline? Guilt. The reality of our transgression of God's law, both in Adam, as a historical person, and by our own actions. We are guilty before him. And our guilt is a real guilt because we've broken God's law. Grace, God's purpose to satisfy the demands of the broken law through the life, death, and resurrection of his beloved son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then gratitude, the loving response We, by the Spirit, return to God because he has saved us. So, you see, as we move forward, I want you to keep this in mind. Though we'll be talking a lot about the law in the next 40 minutes or so, I want you to remember the gospel always. And remember, that's more central to the theology of the confession than is the law. I I don't want to give a misimpression about what the confession speaks. Everybody got that? You understand that? Okay? So to me, it was important to begin this way. The law is necessary even though the gospel is front and center. And we need to understand what the law is about. Now, as I prepared, I learned some interesting things. There's actually a great and rich vocabulary of terms that are related to the law in the Second London Confession of Faith. There might be more than you realize, because as I thought through the contents of the confession, there are at least 13 different terms or phrases which address the matter of law in the confession. So let's look at some raw facts, and let's think about this together. First off, there is the word law. Now, Let me say this first. When when I teach on the confession of faith, I urge my students to understand that we should not approach it as simply 32 separate and isolated theological subjects. That that is to read it vertically, to see these things, and, and to fail to recognize the relationship that they have with each other. And so I tell my students, what you need to do is read the confession sideways. A more profound type of term to use would be horizontally. Read it from chapter to chapter, recognizing the threads that are present in the confession. When you're in the earlier chapters, the way that I outline it is I argue that the first six chapters are laying down basic principles. When you're in those first six chapters, you're noticing uh, threads that perhaps will appear later on. So you're, you're anticipating what will come. And when you're later on in the confession of faith, you're looking back and asking the question, how does this pick up a thread that was first mentioned, for example, in chapter 1 or chapter 2 or chapter 3? So you want to read it back and forth, sideways or horizontally. And in a sense, that's what we'll be doing in the next 30 minutes or so. That's the focus of attention uh, that I have here. All right, the raw facts, 13 different terms. Let's begin with the word law. The word law, or its variations, lawful, lawfully, and lawgiver. I'd love to give a quiz. How many times do you think it appears? But I won't do that. Law, in its various forms, appears 43 times in the confession of faith. That word, or one of its variations, appears 43 times. Now, already, perhaps you understand why I wanted to begin with the gospel. 43 is a lot, isn't it? And that's only the first word. The first time that it begins, or that we encounter the word law, is in chapter 4 of creation, where it speaks about the law of the moral law and positive law that were given to Adam and Eve. The moral law that was written on his heart, the positive law, the command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of good and evil. And it occurs 40 more times until finally in chapter 28 of baptism and the Lord's Supper is the last time that the word law appears. So it's woven throughout the confession. In fact, a very interesting study would simply be to look at all the uses of the word law as it works its way through. I've got that summarized a little bit later on. We'll get to some of those things. Right now, I'm just giving you the raw facts. The second term that we ought to notice, now the rest of these terms are all related in one way or another to the concept of the law. Okay. The second term is the word rule. The word rule, it's used nine times in the confession of faith, you know what a rule is. That's when Dad says you must be in bed by nine o'clock, or else. That's the rule of the house. Well, it's used in the confession of faith in that sense. A rule of the house is a law of the house, isn't it? Um, keep the the law, keep the rule, or you will face the wrath of Dad. And that's the idea. Nine times it appears in the confession of faith. Next is the word command, or commands or commandment, or commandments. And this, with its variations, occurs 17 times in the confession of faith. Uh, look with me at paragraph, uh, chapter 4, paragraph 3. Besides the law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is not the first time that it occurs in the Confession of Faith, but it's very clear and very easy for us to understand what command means. So now we have three synonymous terms law and its variations, rule and command that we notice. The fourth word that we can identify in the Confession is the word precept. A precept is likewise. A law. See, see what I'm trying to do is build a theology of law from the confession, recognizing that there is a rich variety of vocabulary that's present. So the fourth word is precept. It only occurs twice. It occurs in chapter 19, which is the chapter on the law of God, and then it occurs in chapter 20, which is a chapter about the gospel and the extent of the spread of the gospel in the world. Precept. Now, the next family of words you expect to find in the confession of faith, and that's the word obey, which interestingly enough, in its verb form, only occurs four times. Obey occurs only four times. When you parents talk to your children and you tell them to obey, that also is law, isn't it? It's requiring them to follow the directions that you give to them. And so when we encounter the word obey in the confession of faith, we need to recognize that it has a direct relationship to law. More common than the verb is the noun obedience. Obedience occurs 29 times in the confession of faith. Just as an example, turn with me to to chapter 11. Chapter 11, one of the great chapters. Well, you know... It's difficult for me to say it's one of the great ones because I love them all. But chapter 11 of justification has such a fantastic definition of what justification by faith alone is. Look at the first paragraph. This word obedience appears three times. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. Then we have a series of not, but. Not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, that is, uh, an obedience that comports with the gospel, that somehow that's what makes us right or allows us into God's presence. But by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law, a tremendously important doctrine, and his passive obedience in his death for their whole and sole righteousness, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. Man, this is fantastic. Our Lord Jesus Christ obeyed the law of God and his righteousness is that which is granted to us and clothes us, his obedience rather, which is his righteousness. And then he died in our place and endured the wrath of God because we are lawbreakers. And so his passive obedience is the obedience that he renders in a lifetime of suffering culminating in the cross. But you see how obedience has a direct relationship to the word law, and in this case, it has a direct relationship to our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see more of that a little bit later on. So we've had six terms so far. Law, rule, command, precept, obey, obedience. The next, the next one, pardon me, is the word authority. Authority. Even in our own discussion, the word authority carries with it oftentimes the connotation of one who has the right to set laws or to enforce laws. We often speak of the police force as the local authority, because it's their responsibility to see that we're keeping the laws of the jurisdiction. And so we find this word authority eight times in the confession of faith. The first time it appears in chapter 1, paragraph 3, it's speaking about the Apocrypha, those added books that the Roman Catholics claim belong to Scripture, and it says that they have no authority. In the fourth paragraph of chapter 1, it speaks about Scripture and claims for it true authority because God is its author. But here's an interesting one. Turn with me to um, chapter 23, paragraph 2. 23, 2. which I think is a mistaken, oh yeah, there it is, okay. Of lawful oaths and vows. This is one of those chapters of the Confession that we read it very quickly when we move on. But it's got all kinds of helpful information in it. Look at the second paragraph. The name of God only is that by which men ought to swear. And there it is to be used with all holy fear and reverence. Now, that's a statement about law, isn't it? I didn't even count that one in my total. But that's a statement about law. If there's only one way that we are to approach this question of swearing, oaths, then we're being told what is right and what is wrong. Let's keep going. Therefore, to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious or dreadful name, or to swear it all by any other thing is sinful and to be abhorred, yet as in matter of wait and moment for confirmation of truth and ending all strife, an oath is warranted by the word of God, So a lawful oath being imposed by lawful authority in such matters ought to be taken. Now, there probably aren't too many times when it's necessary for us to take an oath imposed by lawful authority, though I know what you're thinking right now, a courtroom, right? I've served on a jury. Many times I've been in the voir dire process. And the first thing that they do is they swear you in that everything that you say will be true. And when I do that, I do it not because of the judge or because of the the members of the court. I do that thinking, I'm raising my hand and I'm saying this in the presence of God, that I will honestly judge according to the law what is said to me. So there, a lawful authority has imposed on me an oath, and I'm glad to take that oath, but I do so, they don't know it, but I'm doing it before God, knowing that he will hold me accountable for the words that I speak. So it's it's interesting, isn't it, that we have the word lawful and we have the word authority here, giving us that sense of even in the political realm that that, uh, there is a responsibility that we have. The next word that I have identified is the word observe. To observe something is to follow along. Now, I could say, well, I'm observing the fact right now that there's time on that screen in the back. That's not a law. But oftentimes, we use the word observe, don't we, to say, have you observed such and such? Have you observed the speed limit? No, officer, I didn't observe the speed limit. Well, I'm just going to give you a warning this time. Don't do it again. Or he says, I'll have to write you up. That'll be $75, please. But we use the word observe in that sense to speak about a law. How about the word forbid? or forbidden. If something is forbidden, doesn't that mean that to do it would be to break a commandment, to violate a law? Uh, Look with me at chapter 25, which is, in our day and age, an incredibly important chapter. Did I say 25? I meant 25, yeah. An incredibly important chapter because of the attacks that have been made on Christian marriage, on marriage as God intended for it to be. And notice paragraph 4. Marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity, that's blood, or affinity, that's relationships by way of marriage. The 1 Corinthians 5 violation was a violation of affinity. The man was having his father's wife. He wasn't blood related to her. It's a marriage of affinity, a relationship of affinity. Forbidden in the word nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties, so as those persons may live together as man and wife. There, the word of God forbids certain blood relationships and certain marriage relationships, and it's wrong to be involved in marriages in those circumstances. Their forbid points us to a law, doesn't it? All right, let's keep going. How about the word prescribe? Three times in the Confession of Faith, we encounter the word prescribe. Now, most of us perhaps have been to physicians, and the physicians prescribe for us a medication, and you're free to take it or not. It's not a law at that point. But when the lawful authority prescribes something, you are bound to keep it. Let's go back to the speeding illustration. When locally the the prescribed speed limit is 30 and you go through that zone at 50, you've just broken the prescription of the lawful authority. And so prescribe has that sense three times in the confession of faith. Uh, 26.5 is what I wrote down in my notes. In the execution of this power wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calls out of the world unto himself through the ministry of the word by his spirit those that are given unto him by his Father that they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience which he prescribeth to them in his word. Now, it sends us back to the word of God and tells us that in the word of God, the Lord Jesus, the one who rightly claims all authority in heaven and earth, has given to us prescriptions by which we are to live. Another, Another way that law is placed here. I'm almost near the end of my list, but not quite. The next term is the word appoint, or appointed, which occurs in the sense of command. And this is nine times in the confession of faith. Um, Look with me at chapter 14, paragraph 1. The grace of faith... Remember what I said at the beginning. It's a confession of faith. The gospel is first. The grace of faith... Whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. God has appointed that there are certain things that we ought to do, which are the means, number one, by which people are converted or by which your faith and my faith is strengthened. Now, Because God has appointed them, we are able to trust that they will accomplish what he intended for them to accomplish. That's what it's all about. We ask in the word of God, what has God commanded? What has he prescribed? What has he appointed? And we follow those things. We pray that he would bless that which he himself has commanded to us. Two more to go. Instituted or institution... We read, for example, in chapter 26 that the Lord Jesus has instituted certain things for the church. The church is to be, is to do certain things. Those come to us from the Lord Jesus. My final illustration is a a, a phrase that has a a variety of um, presentations, variations that we see. Three times uh, in chapter 26... Phrase similar to this, it is according to the mind of Christ. The reason that that phrase and its variations is used is to say when the church contemplates what it ought to be and what it ought to do, it should do so by seeking to know what the mind of Christ on this is. And of course, there's only one way by which we may know what the mind of Christ is. You know what it is. It's the word of God. So we go back to the scriptures that he has prescribed, where has instituted, where he's commanded the law that he's given to us. And we receive that. And so, do you know how many times total just from these? And I, I can't say that I mind every single synonym in the, in the confession. But the total of these 13 words or phrases occurring in the confession with the sense of law is 141 times. 141 times in 32 chapters, we have law or one of its equivalents that's occurring. Once again, let me say, this is why I began by emphasizing the gospel. Because I don't want anybody to walk away and say, well, that confession of faith, it's just about law. He said there's 141 synonymous terms or words in the confession. Therefore, it must be about law. No, brothers and sisters, it's about the gospel. And the fact that it turns our attention to law is so that the brightness of the gospel might shine more clearly to us. I hope that that'll be a takeaway for you. Now, if we were to collate this material, if we were to think through it together, I would suggest to you that there are at least four ways that law in the confession of faith can be understood. It can refer to natural law. There are a couple of places where the phrase the law of nature is incorporated. It can refer to the moral law, that is, the moral law that's written on Adam's heart and then summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. It can refer to positive law, which we'll have a whole session to make a a distinction between moral law and positive law, looking at a text in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 especially. And it can also refer to political laws. So natural law, moral law, positive law, and political laws. Let me give you some examples of each of these, working our way through the Confession. First, natural law. Now, you might ask the question, what is natural law, or sometimes phrased, the law of nature? Well, Richard Muller, a scholar who has worked on post-Reformation theology, gives a really helpful definition of it. He puts it like this, the divinely given order or rule of the creation, and accordingly, the universal law either impressed by God upon the hearts of all rational creatures or immediately discerned by the reason in its encounter with the order of nature. The law of nature is inward, written on the heart. Now, if you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 2. This is the classic text to describe the doctrine of natural law or the law of nature. Romans 2, we don't have time to think about this in a great deal of depth, but notice what the apostle says, the inspired word of God verse 12 for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of god but the doers of the law will be justified for when gentiles now that's me and probably that's you all my grandparents were immigrants to the united states so they all came from northern europe back in the day their ancestors dressed up painted their faces blue danced before the sun and the moon, and they killed each other and ate each other. That's my ancestors, Gentiles, through and through. Okay, So Paul is describing me, and unless you're Jewish, he's also describing you. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, okay, they don't have the written law, it wasn't given to them, it was given to Israel. Remember, later on in Romans, Paul says one of the blessings that came to Israel is that they had received the law from God. Gentiles didn't have it. All the rest of the world was ignorant of the law as it came through Moses. The Gentiles didn't have it. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Now, what we have in the confession of faith is this doctrine laid out for us. Take take your confession again. Look at chapter twenty-two, paragraph seven. I hope you'll forgive my sniffles. It's been a bad allergy season in Texas. And it, when I flew over here this morning, it was continued on, and that's what you're hearing. So it's not anything worse than allergies. 22.7. Notice all of the law language here. As it is, as it is the law of nature, or natural law, that in general, a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, so his word in a positive moral and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages, he has particularly appointed one day and seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, etc. We'll, like I said, we'll talk about that positive moral distinction probably tomorrow. Certainly tomorrow. But notice the beginning the law of nature, the law of nature, the law that's written on the heart teaches all men in all places that a proportion of time is to be set apart for God. Now, we ought to expect in Gentile, non-Christian, pagan contexts that they warp, that they twist the law of God. It's not surprising that you might find among them that they keep one day in ten, or maybe they keep one hour every other day, or, or it doesn't matter. The fact that time is given to God in their system of worship is a demonstration that the law has been written on their hearts. We ought to expect that it will be twisted. But the very fact that in all cultures, there is this sense that they ought to give time to their god, whoever their god is, is a demonstration of the law that's written on the heart. That's the point that they're trying to make in this place. Also, in chapter chapter 26, paragraph 10, we encounter the law of nature again. the work of pastors being constantly to attend the service of Christ in his churches in the ministry of the word and prayer with watching for their souls as they that must give an account to him, it is incumbent on the churches to whom they minister not only to give them all due respect, but also to communicate to them of all their good things according to their ability, so they may have a comfortable supply without being themselves entangled in secular affairs, and may also be capable of exercising hospitality toward others, Pastors ought to be supported by their people. Why? And this is required by the law of nature and by the express order of our Lord Jesus, who has ordained that they that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Both the law of nature, that's what's written on the heart, the workman is worthy of his wages, is the way it's phrased in Luke's gospel, and Paul picks that up again in 1 Timothy. The worker is worthy of his wages, and the Lord Jesus gives the express command When we support our pastors and do so generously, we're obeying both the law of nature, the law that's written on the heart, and the express command of our Lord Jesus. This is what the law of nature or natural law is about, and we see it here in the confession of faith. The second um, category in which we see God's law is the moral law, the moral law. And uh, I guess um, look at chapter 4, Paragraphs 2 and 3. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. That's how the image of God is defined based on language from Ephesians and Colossians, bringing that back into the Old Testament, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. So Adam and Eve came forth from the hand of God with the law of God written on their hearts. They weren't moral neuters. They weren't like a hard drive without any software on it. They came forth when they opened their eyes. The law of God was there with them. Notice how the next paragraph begins. Besides the law written in their hearts, they received a command. See, the distinction. There's the moral law. It was written on their hearts, and it belongs to them. Now, there's many other places in the confession of faith. Because time is pressing on, I won't have you look at them. This is the same as the law of nature written on Adam's heart, and later externally written in the Ten Commandments. Now, there is a distinction and yet a parallel use in the terms. Moral law is part of general revelation. You know what general revelation is? General revelation is that which God reveals of himself in the world around us, in creation. Since the moral law is written on the heart, all are subject to it and will be judged by it. This is... Why Gentiles who never hear the law, never hear of Christ, will be judged because the law of God is written on their hearts. That's what they will be guilty of breaking. Every person intuitively knows the moral law, and yet they break it. In chapter 6, paragraph 1, the moral law is called the law of their creation, but it speaks of Adam and Eve. The third type of law that is contained in the Confession is what I've referred to several times as positive law. My son likes to call it plus law. And that means it's, it's been added. It's something extra. As we shall see, positive law requires special revelation. It would not be known if God did not reveal its necessity. And it's related, in the Bible at least, to a specific historical covenant. God speaks to men and imposes upon them stipulations that are to be obeyed. Without direct revelation, and until direct revelation is given, there is no obligation to obey a positive law. If you don't know it, you can't violate it, and you're not obliged to keep it. The simplest illustration is circumcision. Circumcision was a positive law. Do you remember how old Abram was when God came to him and told him to be circumcised in his whole household? He was 99 years old. Now, did he sin by living 99 years as a Gentile without circumcision? No, of course not, because that law had not yet been revealed to him. It was added to him. That's what a plus law is. But we'll see more about that, God willing, tomorrow. Likewise, a positive law may be annulled by divine revelation. Hebrews 7.12, which we'll also look at later on this weekend, tells us that when there's a change in the priesthood, there's a change of law. And that's that's speaking of the positive laws of the Old Testament. Um, If you ate bacon today, you did so to the glory of God, and you didn't break any laws. The fourth category, political laws. And we notice these, especially in chapter 24, um, which deals with the civil magistrate, the, the political powers over us. Now, this must be understood carefully, because the confession and really Puritan theology is teaching us, political laws are intended by God for the civil sphere only, and they are not to be imposed on the church. The civil magistrate has a right to rule in our lives, but not when the church comes together. It cannot prescribe to the church that which the church ought to do. And our Confession of Faith lays that out very clearly for us here. it is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto, and the management whereof as they ought, especially to maintain justice and peace according to the wholesome laws of each kingdom and commonwealth, so, that that, so for that end they may lawfully now, under the New Testament, wage war upon just and necessary occasions. The civil magistrate does have a sphere in which he is to act, but it has nothing to do with imposing religious duties upon the church. And that's why... In uh, in chapter twenty one of Christian Liberty, we have that great statement. You know, uh, when I teach the Confession of Faith, I, once I was asked this question: "Have you memorized the Confession?" My answer is no, because I ought to memorize Scripture, not the Confession. It's a point of reference. I want to go back to it regularly, but I want to know the Word of God. But there are a couple of phrases in it that I do believe we ought to memorize. And one of them is the first sentence of the second paragraph of chapter 21. God alone is Lord of the conscience. And has left it free from the teachings of men. God alone is Lord of the conscience. Come back to that over and over again. Well, what we have here, as my time is running away from me, four categories of law in the confession. There's another way that we could look at law in the confession. I'm only going to give you my heads on this. It's the so-called three uses of the law. Now, this is not the same as the threefold division of the law, which views it as moral, ceremonial, and judicial. I think Dr. Barcellus will be talking about that sometime. But rather, this is how the moral law of God is used. And it's interesting. You'll find Luther and Calvin teaching the same thing, but putting them in different orders. So I'll just give you the way that that, uh, Calvin puts it. The first use of the law is to reveal God's righteousness and our sin. It shows us our sinfulness. Remember, the shorter catechism asks the question, what is sin? This is one we ought to memorize. What is sin? Sin is any lack of, actually they use the word want, but it means lack. Sin is any lack of, can you help me? Conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is not a violation of cultural mores. Sin which Jesus died is a violation of God's law. That's the first use of the law. The second use, Luther makes this one first, Calvin makes it second, is to restrain evil. And we could look into Romans chapter 3 as an example of that. And the third use of the law is to show us that which is pleasing to God. And So the confession of faith, picking up texts like 1 John 5, 3, tells us, it teaches us how we can honor our God as that, those commands are revealed to us in Scripture. All right, a couple more things that I want to say, and then I'll be done. The next thing is, the law also has a direct relation to Christ. We need to see this. We need to make an, import, uh, make an important statement here. He is the lawgiver, our Lord Jesus Christ. In the first paragraph of chapter 19, we see the word God, and it refers to the fact that God the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, have given a law. Even more explicitly, in chapter 28, paragraph 1, which speaks of baptism or introduces baptism and the Lord's Supper, our Lord is called the only lawgiver. He is the one who gives to us commands, and we are to obey them. The second way that the law has a direct relation to Christ is that his incarnation came under the law. He had to endure that which you and I don't have to endure, and yet he did. He kept perfectly not only the moral law of God, but all of the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. He kept them perfectly. Thirdly, he satisfied the demands of the law on behalf of his people. Now we've already seen in chapter 11, the chapter on justification, something of this. By his substitutionary death, we are redeemed from the curse of the broken law, And by faith, his righteous obedience to the law is imputed to us. Dear brother or sister, you are what you are because Jesus Christ, who kept the law perfectly, endured God's wrath on your behalf and has granted to you by faith his righteousness so that you may boldly approach the throne. That's the gospel. But it's because of what Christ has done in his relationship to the law. And then fourthly, The fourth thing that we can say about what our Lord has done in relation to the law, because of his work in the new covenant, we are free from the bondage of the Mosaic law. And go back to my joke before, if you had bacon today, you did so to the glory of God. It's okay. Have ribs, have pork, have a ham. Of course, it's always strange that we have ham on Easter, isn't it? (laughs) At least that's that's the custom. All right, two more things to say. First, the law and the gospel belong together. The law and the gospel belong together. In chapter 19, paragraph 7, we read this. And I think Dr. Barcellus is going to speak about this as well. Neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. They sweetly comport. Now, let's go back with me to the first sentence of the the confession. One, one. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Christian brothers and sisters, only Scripture can give believers instruction about saving obedience. Your obligation is is to obey what the Lord Jesus Christ lays down in the Word of God. Those are the laws that we are to keep moral and positive as they come to us through the New Covenant. Well, I actually had a whole lot more, but that's going to become tomorrow morning's message. We'll look more closely at chapter 19 of the Law of God. I had thought that maybe I'd get through all of that. I doubted that I would. Now I'm sure that I, that I can't. So we'll, God willing, we'll do that tomorrow morning. Thank you very much.